of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Mike Winowski, one of the pastors here at Geneva. My friend Sylvia has copies of the sermon manuscript in case you want one. A lot of people who have English as their second or third language appreciate that. And some others like to have it to follow along later in the week. So if you want it, get it from Sylvia. Friends of Jesus Christ, I am really excited that we're beginning a series on the book of Ephesians today. But I don't want to talk about my excitement. I want to talk about the Apostle Paul's excitement. Paul's really pumped up as he writes this letter. He's really into it. And if you're following along in the manuscript, you're going to notice that I'm going to skip a whole section that's in italics that explains my reasons technically why I think Paul is pumped up the way he uses language and some comparisons I've made to some of Paul's other letters. So that's another reason to grab the manuscript, but I'm going to skip all that, and I'm going to go down to the bottom of the first page on the manuscript and, and ask you to take my word for it that Paul's excited. You can just tell by, by, by the way he, he speaks. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like that's the ancient equivalent of an emoji, right? When you use a word three times like that. But what's Paul excited about? Well, obviously he's excited about God. You know, that's the children's sermon answer, right? God. What God has done in Christ. And, and the temperature of Paul's excitement, I would say is pretty high comparing it with the rest of his letters. But it's actually not that remarkable if Paul's excited about God, right? I mean, we should be excited about God. God's undeniably great beyond anything or anyone that we could ever imagine. And I'm going to say a little bit more about God's greatness in a moment, but it's not on the face of it all that remarkable if Paul, the apostle, is excited about God. That's kind of his job. It's to me a little more remarkable that Paul is excited about the church. And obviously... Paul can't think about the church apart from the grace of God that creates the church, that makes the church. But Paul seems in this letter almost as excited about the church as he is about God. And this letter is as much about the church as it is about God. So let's think about that for a moment. I mean, think of it, come to the present. People are generally... not very excited about the church these days. 
not even in the church, and certainly outside of the church. And in some ways, you can certainly understand that. You see that some churches have become havens for greedy people or bastions of racism. You hear stories about churches allowing sexual predators to victimize women and children and then systematically covering that up. The church often fails. The church sometimes fails spectacularly. But that might be a good reason to listen to Paul and try to recover a sense of what the church is supposed to be. Every Christian and every church community ought to read this letter and and let it sink in. The church in Paul's own time had not yet produced one of those spectacular failures. But it looked like a pretty insignificant community. The church in Ephesus and most other places where the church sprang up in the Roman Empire was this little underground society that went almost totally against the grain of the mainstream culture of that time. The church had no power. The church had no influence. The church wasn't even legal. Everyone, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, everyone thought the church was really weird. And no Christian of that time, of the first generation of the church, was likely to have anything like a superiority complex. In the world's eyes, and sometimes in the church's own eyes, the church was nothing. Which makes the things Paul says here about the church totally astonishing. And you have to notice that Paul is blessing God mainly because of what God has done for the church and in the church. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does Paul mean when he says that? What constitutes every spiritual blessing in Paul's mind? Well, I want to point out three things that Paul focuses on. And they all answer the same question. What does God have in mind for the church? What is the church? Not in the world's eyes, not even in its own eyes, but in the sight of God and in the heart of God. What is the church? And what is the church for? According to the plans and the purposes that God is going to work out by His unfailing and sovereign power. Those are the questions that Paul answers. And I want to focus on three things. First, God chose us to be holy and blameless before Him. Second, God destined us for adoption as His children. And third, God has in mind that we will be for the praise of His glory. And I want to talk about that phrase, but first things first. Obviously, I'm grabbing phrases right out of the passage, but what do they mean? We need to take time when we read Scripture to think about what what these words and phrases mean. What does it mean that God chose us to be, what's the word? You listening? To be holy. Holy is not a word you hear very often, except maybe in phrases like holy cow and other exclamations along those lines. When's the last time you heard someone sincerely refer to a person as holy? Or a thing? Or a place? Holy ground? A holy 
moment. Holy woman or man. Holiness might be the rarest quality in this fallen world. I should give some credit to wisdom that Jim just finished preaching on for the second half of the summer. Wisdom is pretty rare too, but I think holiness might be even rarer. What person or what thing in this world would you describe as holy? If you made a list of wise things and holy things, the list of wise things might be slightly longer. But here's what's interesting about this. Holiness is probably God's most fundamental and defining characteristic. When the prophet Isaiah, this is from Isaiah chapter 6, everybody, ought, every Christian ought to know that passage. Isaiah sees a, sees a vision of God on God's throne in heaven. And he's almost completely unmade by the experience. In that vision, God is surrounded by mighty creatures, like beyond our imagining, called cherubim. And Isaiah notices two things about these mighty heavenly creatures. First, they have six wings, but they only fly with two of their wings. With two more of their wings, they cover their faces. And with two of their wings, they cover their feet, which, which may be a euphemism for their, their private parts, for, for their nakedness. The other thing he notices is that they, they never stop talking, yelling, crying out to one another. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Footnote, that's why I had us sing holy, holy, holy this morning. Repeating something three times isn't mindless repetition in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's about the maximum degree of emphasis that the Bible ever provides. So if even angels, holy angels, cover their faces and their feet in the presence of a three times holy God, what is it like for us mortal sinners to stand, to be in the presence of God? Isaiah's experience might be the pattern because he's almost taken apart by it. He's filled with a sense of his sinfulness. You, if, you, if you know the passage, this will be familiar. He says, woe is me! I'm undone! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He, he has this powerful sense of collective shame and unworthiness. And we'd all be like Isaiah, almost unmade. I really forget almost. We might be completely unmade. We might not, we would not survive an encounter with the absolutely holy God unless some mercy protected us. And just think about this in human terms. Have you ever been seriously intimidated by another person? Maybe someone really famous that you always wanted to meet and you had this hundred question long list of questions that you wanted to ask but in the moment you just couldn't get anything out of your mouth or maybe someone really strong like you line up across the volleyball net from this six foot seven hulk who's just waiting to humiliate you with every volley or someone really clever you entered the amateur chess tournament and you line up against the person who's won the tournament the last ten times in a row or, or maybe Someone, this, this might be more on it, someone who's in a position to decide your fate. Say a judge, if you've been accused of a crime. 
or the person interviewing you for a job or listening to your audition or watching your track tryout or like the principal when you get sent to the principal's office and you don't know what kind of note is going to be sent home to your parents. So what do you think it might be like to see God as God actually is and to be aware of yourself as you actually are? You might wish you had 60 wings to cover yourself with. And yet, what Paul says in this passage is so astonishing and so good. So encouraging. God chose us to be holy and blameless before Him in His sight. And surely that entails and requires the blood of Christ along with the forgiveness of our sins that Christ's sacrifice for us makes possible. The cross is certainly at the heart of Christianity and of the things Paul is saying. Paul names that in the passage. But I think he means more than just the forgiveness of our sins. I think he means that God chose us to become like him. Not just in some kind of formal sense, like God politely choosing not to notice how sinful we are, not to see our nakedness and our shame, but beyond that, in some real sense that is only possible because of God's grace. God's goal for us is that we should be holy, not just in His sight, but in His presence and in reality. And in case you don't recognize, recognize it, this is a calling. This is a calling for us that we need to take seriously. God is always working in our lives, not to unmake us, but to remake us, pouring out grace so that we will become and actually be fit to stand in His presence, to take our places with those holy angels that cry out and acknowledge that God is holy, holy, holy. And if you're not actively cooperating with that grace in some way, if you're not striving for that result, you're seriously missing the point of what Jesus saved us, saved you for. We can't just think about what He saved us from all the time things we should run away from, but what He saved us for, things we should be reaching for, striving for. The second thing God chose us for is love. God loves His church, and God loves each member of His church. He chose us from before the foundation of the world to be adopted as His children. I do happen to know something about adoption. I've done it three times. A lot of people in this church have adopted children. All my children are adopted, and I love them. I don't think I would hesitate to die for them. And I'm serious. I love them with no reservations at all, with my whole heart. When I adopted Lucy, I had to swear before a judge that I would care for her in every sense as if she were born to me. In China, I had to say, sign documents that said the same thing when I adopted Zoe and when I adopted Cleo. And I meant that each time. I made that choice. And I put my name on the paper and I raised my hand and I swore it. And that's how God loves us. God has one natural son, though that's maybe a strange way to refer to Jesus because he's 
also supernatural. But God has one son who is by all rights the son of God. But the rest of us are God's children too. God's children because God made that choice. Because God put his name on the paper, so to speak. Later in this passage, it talks about the Holy Spirit as a seal, a kind of down payment. That's what Paul's getting at. God made that promise to us. God is going to share with us the whole inheritance that belongs to Jesus. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a deposit. And that's how Paul wants to think of ourselves, as God's children by God's choice. Think about that maybe in heart terms, in practical terms, and where this really gets us and where we really live. A young man told me just last week that his whole life he struggled with issues of belonging. People aren't always that honest with me or with themselves. Because I think we all struggle with issues of belonging and acceptance. I mean, what's the first family in the Bible? Cain and Abel, right? It's about who is accepted and who belongs in the family. A lot of the bad things that have gone on in the world ever since, that go on today, that go on in our country, that go on in our culture, happen because people are insecure about where they belong. All the exclusion is really about insecurity. Paul says that we belong to a father who chose us and who loves us. That's our security. You know, these things blow me away, really. To the extent that I understand them, I understand that I don't understand them at all. What's really going on here? Why would God do this? How could God do this? Literally, how can God do this? How is God able to do these things? It's one of those questions you can't really answer, but it's certain to drive you to worship if you think about these questions. And the last thing I want to talk about this morning is maybe the most amazing of the three things in a certain sense. It's amazing that God can make us holy through Jesus Christ. It's amazing that God chose us to be his children and we really can be his children. But of all the three things that Paul mentions in our passage, the most amazing to me of all is that God can bring glory to himself through us. If the whole earth is full of God's glory, in a, in a maximal way, the whole church is full of God's glory. We can be, to use Paul's phrase, to the praise of God's glorious grace. Paul actually uses some version of that phrase three times in this brief passage that we heard this morning, verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14. But it's the one in the middle, verse 12, that gets me. That we might live for the praise of His glory. And in that we, Paul has in mind the apostles and the first, the very first eyewitness believers of Jesus. But then he goes on to say, and you also. And that's generation to generation until Jesus comes back. You also are for the praise of God's glory. And here's what Paul means by that. He doesn't just mean that we'll see all these things and we'll praise God 
for God's glory. He means that we will bring glory to God. That glory will be ascribed to God because of how we live. God chose us for that. God chose His church, His family, to bring glory to God, the Father of this family. Now, how do you bring glory to another person? Well, you more or less have to do something that they will get the credit for. I think we can imagine some human examples of that. I mean, you turn out to be a great person, or on just some minor level, someone compliments you, and you say something like, well, my mom raised me right. Or my dad taught me everything I know, or my coach, or my professor, or whatever. But if you think about it, this kind of thing actually requires more than the person whose actions bring the glory and the person who gets the glory. Bringing glory to another person seems to require an audience. It seems to require someone to notice this. Someone has to notice what you did in order for you and what you did to bring credit or glory to another person. Person. And that's the picture that Paul paints in the book of Ephesians as well as in his other letters. We, the church, are living out God's call before a watching world, and not just a world, but countless unseen beings in the heavenly realms. Beings both good and evil are watching us, watching the church. And God has in a sense put his honor at stake in this cosmic drama that we are now at the center of into our hands. You may have noticed that Paul uses the word mystery in this passage. And I don't want to try to unravel the mystery. By their very nature, mysteries can't be unraveled. But I, but I want to point out that we're standing on the edge of a mystery here. On the one hand, Paul presents us with a view from God's throne in which God's sovereign purposes are going to prevail. God's plans will work out. We have the Holy Spirit as a down payment and we will receive the rest of the inheritance. And yet Paul also presents us with a not quite parallel view, a view from where we can't see the end of the story, maybe because we're right in the middle of it. A view from which we are on the stage, working out God's purposes, living out God's grace and embodying its effects in our lives, participating in this cosmic spiritual struggle. God puts part of the, yes, He can do this, into our hands in very much the way He put it into Christ's hands when He sent Him into the world to accomplish his purposes, and his part of the mission of God. And if you don't look at things, if you don't look at your life from both of these angles, then nothing's going to make sense. Not only the book of Ephesians isn't going to have the impact it's going to have, but your life isn't going to have the impact it's supposed to have if you live up to God's purposes. Ephesians aims at, at two things. First, inspiring the confidence and also the love on our part, for the God who chose us before the foundation of the world. But second and equally important, encouraging us to act on that confidence and that love, inspiring a determination on our part to live in a way that not only secures our grasp 
on salvation, but that aims at bringing and that actually does bring glory to God. Ephesians is all about grace, but it's a grace that leans towards action. It's a grace that puts us, sisters and brothers, in a position to bring glory to God. So I want to end this morning with a phrase. I want to say it, and then I want you to say it after me. It's not that hard. It's in verse 4 if you want to have it. But I want us to say this together. First I'll say it, and then we'll say it together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Go and say that every day this week. And that alone might, in some small way, change your life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Would you pray with me? Father, we've drunk from a fire hose this morning. But let some of that water of your grace stay inside of us and bring forth in some small and large way what you want to bring forth in us and from us. Help us to be what you chose us to be in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.